Hello, Onscriptors. Welcome to the next episode of the Onscript Podcast. And this is going to be a good one. We have a very special guest today. And again, Matt and I are getting to co-host, which we find we really enjoy. So hopefully we'll get to do more of that in the future. Uh, Before we start this episode, I just wanted to mention a few things about the podcast. We've been going now for almost a year. We're coming up on 10 months soon. And I would say it's exceeded our expectations. And that's due to your listening to this. So thank you so much and for sharing the word. So we would love for the word to get out more. Feel free to share it among your friends and family and colleagues and random people that you meet on the street because they too need to hear about some new and noteworthy biblical scholarship. Um, Also, I want to encourage you, if you haven't already, to go to iTunes and if you want to give us a rating, that helps more people find out about it. If you give us a favorable rating, then that helps even more. So we'd love that and appreciate it. And also, we have a donate tab on our website now, which would be really helpful because we've we're, we've a few times had to up our bandwidth limit and our storage limit because we've got so much content now, and a lot of people are becoming interested in this. So we'd love for um, for this to be able to go on, and we need your help to do that. So if you'd like to give five dollars or five pounds that that would be most welcome and appreciated so finally I just want to say that uh, we have some more fantastic episodes coming up we've got well I won't tell you yet you'll have to wait and see we've got some really good ones on the way and you know getting to do this podcast is is like the equivalent of an NBA fan getting to talk to Steph Curry or Kobe Bryant whoever and uh, you know it's really an exciting thing to be part of and Matt and I created this podcast because we wanted to extend that kind of frontier feeling of biblical studies that we get because we're in this field to more people and uh, if you have any feedback on any way we can do that feel free to leave comments in on our Facebook page on on script Facebook page or in the comment section of our episodes and we would, we would love to just hear from you about ways that you think that we can make this a more hospitable and inclusive environment for more voices at the table talking about uh, the best in biblical scholarship. So without further ado, Richard B. Hayes. Unaware of Jesus' identity as he walks alongside them, the two travelers on the road to Emmaus recount the strange tale of Jesus' passion and the empty tomb. Jesus rebukes them, O foolish men, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? 
And then Luke reports, And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later Jesus took bread, blessed it, and gave it to them. Then they recognized him and exclaimed, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? This is Matt Bates, along with my on-script partner, Matt Lynch, and we are dual hosting for you today. Hi, Matt Lynch. Are you with me or against me? I'm with you, Matt. Very good. Uh, Richard B. Hayes is our guest for OnScript today. Richard is George Washington Ivy Professor of New Testament at Duke Divinity School and formerly the Dean. He's also a world-renowned scholar. Welcome to the podcast, Richard. Thanks so much for joining us. We're delighted that you could be with us today. Well, good morning. I'm pleased to be with you. Our topic, Richard's new book, Echoes of Scripture in the Gospels, Baylor University Press, 2016. At the close of his book, Richard expresses hope that the future church will find itself able to enact this Emmaus scene, that when the bread is broken, we will find ourselves looking backward through the scriptures, saying, were not our hearts burning within us while Jesus was opening the scriptures to us? We hope then, Richard, as our conversation unfolds, that you'll have some practical suggestions for how the church can become a hearts burning within us church. Richard, I was reading and noticing in your preface to the book that you you talk quite openly about the difficult circumstances in which you wrote this book. And I was wondering if you could share a little bit with our listeners about some of the ways that uh, what you went through personally impacted the writing of the book, um, but also maybe how it challenged you to draw from some of the perspectives that we see represented in the book. Sure, I'd be happy to say something about that. Um, this is a book I'd been working on for a long time. I really started digging into research on the Gospels about 15 years ago and actively began writing uh the manuscript of the book during a sabbatical uh, in the year 2008-2009, but the the book had been delayed significantly by the fact that I was asked to take over as dean of the Duke Divinity School, and it really got put onto the back burner. And uh, so it was, I had a lot of the manuscript completed. I had written full drafts of each of the chapters on the Synoptic Gospels and had begun working on John. Uh, But it was still really waiting for me to finish my term as dean and to go on another sabbatical to finish it. But then unexpectedly in the summer of 15, um, I was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And I decided, uh, well, it it was not a difficult decision under the circumstances. I I stepped down from being dean and went on a year-long medical leave to undergo cancer treatments. And as I talked with my wife about what what we should do, uh, both of us had a strong sense that it was a high priority for me to try to finish this book. And so I conferred with uh, uh, Dr. Carrie Newman, who's the director of Baylor University Press and who had published uh, an earlier, shorter study on these themes that I'd written. Um, And he kicked into gear the resources of his press uh, to help me get the manuscript prepared. And I 
went into overdrive and finished writing the chapter on John and introduction and conclusion to the book. And within a space of about three months, uh, I, we had a complete manuscript and, uh, Carrie also very graciously engaged the services of four colleagues who helped uh, to fill out and complete some of the unfinished footnotes in the book. Um, uh, that I didn't have time to do. And so it was a very much a collaborative effort to get the book completed. Um, so <clears throat> I, from the time of my diagnosis in July of 2015 to my reading completed page proofs, it was, a uh, it was about five months and the book, mm. you know, appeared in, in print very, uh, very quickly. So I'm deeply indebted to Carrie and to the four uh, colleagues who are named in the in the book's preface uh, for helping to complete the book. Mm. And I should say for your listeners that I did have a successful surgery for the cancer uh, last November, and um, uh, we are at a point now where I'm just undergoing uh, periodic scans to see whether it will recur, which is always a possibility. But for the moment, uh, I'm uh, doing well. And as far as I know, cancer free. Praise God, you know, for uh, that improved prognosis. Um, one of the things I'm wondering is, does that change at all uh, your improved prognosis, how you see this present book fitting into your overall scholarly body of work? Is this, do you see this as your legacy project? Uh, do you how do you see this shaping your, your future scholarship uh, to the degree there is going to be future scholarship for you? Oh, Matthew, that's a question. It's very difficult for me to answer because it, I just at this point, I don't know whether uh, I will have a long trajectory to uh, entertain the idea of future major projects or not. Um, so that I think it remains to be seen. This current year for me is a year of reflection and discernment as I try to think about exactly that question. If this is a legacy project, I'm not entirely unhappy with it. It, it seems to me to uh, bring together a lot of the themes I've worked on for a long time and to give, uh, a, a, to me, a, a coherent overview of uh, both the message of the Gospels and the hermeneutics of the Gospels. And I used to think I might try to write a theology of the New Testament. Uh, I now don't think I will do that, uh, partly because I don't know what I would say about the Gospels beyond what I've already said in this book. So um, we'll just we'll see how things play out over the next year. If I make it to... Uh, you know, I'm told the first two years after the cancer surgery are the time when recurrence uh, has the highest probability. And so if I make it to two years, then I'll take stock of what I want to do beyond that. So, so Richard, um, thanks. First of all, thanks for for sharing all that. And um, one of the one of the things I really appreciate about your book is that, in, in many ways, it's it's not. It, it's not method heavy. It's it's rather uh, a careful reading of the Gospels, 
uh, with the Old Testament playing as the music in the background, which I really appreciate and enjoy, especially as an Old Testament scholar. So one of the things I was wondering if you could you'd be up for for doing a challenge here of of taking maybe your favorite echo of scripture in each gospel and just kind of walking our readers through just in one minute each what you consider the greatest hits of each gospel <laughs> well that's a that's a challenging question and especially to ask about a favorite echo uh <laughs> you know it's like asking about your favorite song or your favorite child or something but um <laughs> the uh uh but I, I think I can give you examples that are evocative of, of each of the uh, Gospels that have, you know, that stick for me, especially in the memory, having completed the book. Yeah, that'd be great. Uh, yeah. So, well, so I'll start with Mark. The, the order in which the book treats the Gospels uh, is with Mark first and then Matthew, Luke, John. Uh, the reasons for that have to do with my own belief, which is in accordance with that of almost all New Testament scholars, that the Gospel of Mark is the earliest of the Gospels uh, and is used as a source by Matthew and Luke. So anyway, we will plunge in with Mark. Uh, The one that seems most striking to me is in the story of Jesus walking on the sea in Mark 6. Mm. Uh, it's It's an interesting passage because there's no Old Testament quotation in in the text. Mark doesn't very often uh, cite Old Testament texts with a quotation formula, but I do think that there uh, is a significant echo that often hasn't been heard clearly enough by interpreters of the gospel of a passage in Job 9.8. Most of uh, most English Bibles are translating the Hebrew text where it says God is the one who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea. Uh, but the Septuagint has a slightly different reading of that passage in Job 9.8, which, and it describes God as the one who alone stretched out heaven and walks upon the sea as upon dry ground. And if Mark was thinking of that passage or intending to evoke that passage from Job, it also explains the odd phrase that occurs in Mark's account of Jesus sea walking, where it says he intended to pass them by. Uh, And that has often baffled interpreters. What does it mean? Why did he intend to pass them by? But if you continue reading in Job 9, just beyond the passage I just quoted, you find this. Look, he passes me by and I do not see him. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. And the, the text there translated, he moves on, is exactly the same in the Septuagint, the same Greek that Mark uses, parelthe. Um, and I, I think, again, that the, the reference in Mark that says Jesus intended to pass the disciples by in the boat is probably echoing this passage from Job, uh, which, by the way, then has the effect of clearly identifying Jesus as God, as the one who created heaven and earth and is therefore sovereign over it. So that's uh, an example from Mark. Um, I love that example. That's that's probably one of my favorites in the book. Yeah. Yeah, it's... uh, 
uh, when I when I stumbled across that as I was uh, studying these texts, I just thought, oh wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, Matthew. Uh, in the case of Matthew, I'll turn to the very end of the gospel to the Great Commission passage, uh, where Jesus. Uh, of course, tells the disciples uh, to go and make disciples of all nations. Um, very famous passage, of course, in Matthew. But I think it's not always clear to readers that that passage is echoing, in my opinion, the Son of Man passage in Daniel seven fourteen. Uh, here's the here's Daniel seven fourteen. To him was given dominion and glory and kingship that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. And again, if you look at the Septuagint, the word that was translated dominion in the translation I just read is actually exousia, which is, of course, the, the Mithian word for authority. So there's just a whole series of parallels between Daniel 7 and what Jesus says of himself, that he has now been given all authority and that all nations uh, will serve him. And the the additional intriguing echo of that, I think, suggests not only that Jesus is the one who's the possessor of all authority, uh, but also that his his dominion, his kingship over all the nations, panta to ethne, is to be exercised through the work of the disciples in going out and teaching all nations to obey what he has taught them. So it's not through a military conquest of the nations, but it's through the uh, outflowing of this teaching authority uh, to follow what Jesus has taught and exemplified. So I think there's a, a series of very rich echoes of Daniel going on there. I'm not sure if I'm keeping to the, your one-minute rule of thumb. <laughs> well, ish. One minute-ish. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of the things I especially appreciate about that is how it helps us to draw our eyes up to uh, to Jesus as the king and how I think in your book you, you, you show that all the evangelists do that, that, they, that the, yes. the climax of the gospel is Jesus' kingship. That was something that I, I noticed and appreciated, and I think that your echo here brings that out very effectively. Yes, okay. Uh, well, good. Well, moving right along, Luke uh, this is one that I don't discuss at length, but it is just, uh, again, it just kind of really uh, struck my uh, imaginative sensibility when I saw this. The passage in Luke 13, Jesus laments as he's going up to Jerusalem that Jerusalem is the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. And then he says, how often have I desired to gather your children together as a bird gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. And I've always thought, you know, isn't that odd that he says, how often have I desired and you were not willing? When in Luke's story, Jesus has not been to Jerusalem previously. Uh, and what's it talking about? And then you look back and ask, where does this image of a bird gathering uh, the chicks or brood under the wings. Where does that come from? 
And there are a number of passages in the Old Testament, particularly in Deuteronomy 32 and in Psalm 91, where uh, it's, it's a Psalm 91, he will cover you with his pinions and under his wings you will find refuge. And so it just struck me, isn't this amazing? Jesus realizes he's going up to Jerusalem where he will be arrested and tortured and killed. And instead of praying for the protection of God's sheltering wings, he casts himself now in the role of the God whose wings seek to shelter Israel, an unwilling Israel. And again, I had never seen that before. Um, uh, but you, you read that text against the background of these Old Testament passages of God as the, the bird with the sheltering wings, and all of a sudden uh, it just opens up a depth of signification that, that is richly suggestive in understanding who Jesus is or claims to be. So in the, in the case of John's Gospel, John works somewhat differently in the way that he has uh, Jesus related to the Old Testament, uh, as I try to explain in the chapter. And I think this passage in John 2 gives some crucial clues to how that works. Uh, this is the passage very near the beginning of John's story where Jesus has gone into the temple to clear out the merchants and money changers. And when he's challenged about it, uh, he responds by saying, uh, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up, uh, which, of course, puzzles his listeners. Uh, but then John, the evangelist, uh, remarks to the reader, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. And that becomes a crucial hermeneutical clue for interpreting this whole gospel because it shows that Jesus is the place where the meeting occurs between God and humanity as was the temple so that he is the figural fulfillment of that which the temple represented. But there's one other thing in the passage that's crucial as well, which is it says that thinking back on this much later, the disciples remembered and understood and thought of the text from Psalm 69, zeal for your house will consume me. Uh, actually, the Hebrew text says, zeal for your house has consumed me. Um, but they're hearing it as a, a prefiguration, again, of Jesus' action of clearing the temple. And the reason that's so interesting for John is it makes it absolutely clear that this understanding of scriptural fulfillment is something that occurs retrospectively. The disciples think back later on what Jesus did and said and understand how it's prefigured uh, in the Psalms. And of course, Psalm 69 becomes one of the key Psalms that is referred to numerous times in the New Testament uh, as a passion Psalm that prefigures Jesus' passion and death. So uh, those are just some little instances that I think are good indicators of how the gospel writers work in uh, relating the story of Jesus through these citations of and allusions to the Old Testament. Yeah, that's really helpful. And I think that raises one of the questions it raises for me, uh, just 
just in terms of your work process in finding and and, and discovering these echoes, how, what's your what's your approach for fi- hearing echoes in the New Testament? Is it just that you go through and then you think, huh, that reminds me of such and such, or do you do word searches, or what's your approach to that? Um, I don't tend to do word searches um, unless I'm, you know, looking for something in particular. But you know, the there's nothing very uh, arcane about it. I mean, anybody who has a, a Nestle Elan Greek New Testament, the margin is full of these uh, cross references to Old Testament passages, and you can just go back and start looking them up. Uh, but the thing that I do then is not just read the verse that's cited as a parallel, but I try to read in the wider context of that Old Testament passage and think about how it might or might not reflect light back onto the, the New Testament text or vice versa. Um, and actually in working on this book, I did that fairly systematically, just in reading through the Gospels and making notes on uh, following up on those passages, uh, I will say that uh, occasionally I, I find a few errors and omissions in that Nestle Elan apparatus. Uh, but it's uh, it's the the raw material is there uh, for anybody who wants to start mining it. And by the way, I've, I spoke of the Greek New Testament, but for hearers who don't uh, have, uh, have access to the Greek New Testament, there are many study Bibles that do the same thing, that uh, English translations that provide lots of Old Testament cross-references. The thing that I've found about that, though, is that it's it's all too rare that people actually look up those cross-references and read and compare. I mean, just to take the example I just gave, if you actually read Psalm 69, uh, it says, zeal for your house has consumed me. And, you know, then it's interesting to pause and reflect on why John quotes the text as zeal for your house will consume me, even though there's no textual warrant for that, uh, either in the Hebrew or Greek traditions. And the answer, obviously, is that John is reading the text uh, figurally as prefiguring a future event rather than simply describing something in the psalmist's own past experience. Right. Uh, Richard, um, in the book's introduction, you mentioned that if circumstances had permitted, you would have liked to have developed a fuller account of your methodology, and especially that you would have engaged more extensively with other studies of intertextuality and figural exegesis. And as I was kind of reflecting on your project, one of the things I noticed in comparison with your earlier Echoes uh, book on Paul uh, is that you're using the phrase, and you use it several times throughout this new book, I uh, use the phrase Encyclopedia of Production. Uh, to indicate uh, something about the field of play for intertextual studies, are is this is this a new methodological move? Uh, what do you mean by that term? Uh, and uh, how would you have liked to have developed your methodology more fully? You can take that wherever you wish. Right. Well, as I think I remarked in the preface, it may be a mercy to the reader that I didn't uh, have the opportunity to develop that methodological discussion more fully. Uh, It it may have been, for many people, overkill. 
Um, on the other hand, I've already seen a couple of blog reviews of the book complaining about the fact that I'm not sufficiently clear about methodology, and I, I knew that would be coming uh, from people in the guild. Uh, so, you know, <laughs> there are pros and cons of this. Uh, the, the phrase encyclopedia of production and encyclopedia of reception is one that originates uh, with the uh, scholar and critic Umberto Eco. Uh, it's been, uh, I've particularly found uh, helpful the discussion of, the, of that terminology by the German scholar Stefan Alkir. Uh, he and I co-edited a book called Reading the Bible Intertextually, and, and Stefan has an introduction uh, in which he talks more fully about this uh, these terms uh, for anybody who wants to read further on it. But really, it's a simple idea. The, the encyclopedia is the frame of cultural knowledge or cultural reference that is brought either by the author of a text in writing the text or by the reader of a text. That would be the encyclopedia of reception. Um, uh, when somebody... Um, speaks or writes in, say, contemporary uh, American English. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff there uh, in the uh, Encyclopedia of Reception that's part of popular culture. If somebody says, may the force be with you, uh, people know that it's an allusion to Star Wars. Uh, you know, or for me in my generation, allusions to Bob Dylan or Beatles songs or something like that are just ubiquitous. So um, that's the encyclopedia of reception. But the encyclopedia of production is what's available to the author, what's part of his or her cultural tradition, uh, the knowledge that, that one brings to the writing of a text. And so... In large part, what I'm trying to do is to recover the gospel writer's uh, frame of cultural knowledge, that is, their encyclopedia of production, and to help thereby to enrich our encyclopedia of reception. And by the way, one of the things I would say about that is that uh, the tradition of interpretation in the Christian church and patristic exegesis uh, particularly, is acutely aware of a lot of these uh, Old Testament traditions. And very often uh, you can find uh, you know, early readers of the text who were uh, very much attuned to the way in, in which the Old Testament is functioning in the Gospels. Uh, over time, I think that that has sort of tended to get lost in at least popular Christian uh, interpretation. That, that kind of raises a, a methodological question that I was wondering about. Say, so I read the book, uh, and that's that you, you talk quite freely in the book about how how the echoes that you're discerning in the New Testament aren't aren't always intended by the authors of of the New Testament. Um, so, so in you in your estimation, for for whom are the echoes echoing? Is it the early readers, the ideal readers, and do you think it matters that we pin that down? Well, yeah, it's an interesting question because it's always possible that there may be uh, layers of signification 
in a text of which the author himself is not fully aware uh, that simply because one is living and writing within uh, a living literary or religious tradition, uh, language may be used that has evocative possibilities that the author might not be completely attuned to. Um, the, um, I mean, if I could give you an example of that, that I, that I at least offer in a tentative way in the book, uh, I've, I've always been fascinated by this passage in the trial narrative in the gospel of Matthew, where the crowd says his blood be upon us and upon our children. Um, um, in, in one sense, it's obviously the intended to say that the crowd is guilty and they're taking upon themselves the moral responsibility uh, for the death of Jesus that they are demanding. But on the other hand, there's an, an incredible possible ironic echo there that the blood is precisely the sacrificial blood uh, which has an atoning effect uh, for Israel and for the hearers. And I'm, I'm completely unsure as to whether Matthew, the author of the gospel, was consciously aware of that overtone uh, of intertextuality or not. Um, it, I, there's no evidence to me in the text that Matthew did understand that irony, um, even though he's just we've just seen the Lord's Supper tradition in which Jesus... Uh, describes the cup as uh, symbolizing his own blood. Um, I'm, I, for me, as as an interpreter, as a Christian interpreter now of the text, I think there's a great deal of wisdom in suggesting that the cra- there's a dramatic irony in the text, and that the crowd, even while clamoring for Jesus' death, is actually unintentionally. Uh, evoking the possibility of Jesus' death as atoning for their own sin. Um, so th- that's a case where I'm not sure that particular echo was in the intention of Matthew, the author, but it, whether it was or not, I think it's theologically uh, constructive and suggestive for us as readers of the text. Yeah, I, th- I think that's a a really interesting point, and it seemed like in some ways you moved, correct me if I'm wrong here, but you moved quite freely in your book between things that you were claiming the authors intended and things that you said, you know, I'm not sure, but this echo nonetheless echoes as we read the text. And so yeah. it, that seems to bring in a kind of um, theological category then, because then you're dealing with the question of of you know, as a Christian reader of this, to what extent are these echoes meant to be appropriated, um, you know, as the Holy Spirit engages with us as readers of the text? Yeah, I, I, I think that's right, Matt. And I I think that's as it should be, in a sense. The You, you refer to the Holy Spirit, and it seems to me that the 
New Testament in numerous places is full of suggestions that the Spirit will continue to speak and to disclose to followers of Jesus in the church uh, levels of meaning that were not always necessarily apparent in the past. Uh, I mean, the Gospel of John, of course, is the most explicit about that uh, in the farewell discourses. uh, Jesus promises to send the paraclete uh, who will teach you even more and things that you weren't ready to understand yet. And right. uh, I, I, I think that the church uh, uh, is, is rightly engaged in the ongoing enterprise of continuing to discover these patterns of figural correspondence between Israel's scripture, the Gospels themselves, and our own experience in the present time. Uh, Before I hand it back over to Matt, um, because I know he's got some follow-up questions, I just have so many brimming at the moment, but uh, maybe since we haven't yet uh, stepped back to talk broadly about that figural approach that you take in the book, could you just briefly describe what you mean by figural interpretation? Uh, Yes, uh, I can do that. Uh, The term uh, figural interpretation is one that uh, I derive from the literary critic Eric Auerbach, uh, who wrote a, a, a massive and highly influential study of um, uh, the whole Western literary tradition. The title of his most famous book is Mimesis. Uh, and he, he talks about figural interpretation, and the, it's on page two of the book. I, I quote his definition uh, but in brief, uh, it simply means that figural interpretation is a way of connecting two texts so that a past person or event signifies not only itself, but also some later event, uh, which in turn is said to fulfill the first. And so it, it creates a connection between two points on a temporal line uh, whose meaning is illuminated by discovering the correspondence between them. Uh, and, you know, that happens, of course, in the Bible over and over again, as also in many other examples in literature. Um, so that's, that's all that is meant, really, by figural exegesis. Uh, but it's to be distinguished from some from uh, something like prediction and fulfillment, which requires that the earlier text explicitly envisions or prophesies some future fulfillment. Uh, this is not always the case at all in figural exegesis, that very often it's simply a case of having a narrative pattern that repeats at two different points in a temporal sequence. Richard, one of the things that uh, was kind of jumping into my mind as you were talking about uh, the relationship between uh, text and specifically when you were talking about how uh, sometimes meaning might go beyond authorial intention and that we nevertheless as Christians are sort of are compelled to look for that. And that's the Catholic concept of the census plenier. Uh, yes, I think that what I'm talking about is very much in accord with what the Roman Catholic tradition has pointed to by talking about census plenior, which simply means the fuller sense of a text. <clears throat> um, the 
the Catholic tradition, of course, has understood that in terms of the fuller sense being explicated through the Catholic Church's own magisterium and tradition of interpretation. But I think at root, theologically, what is being pointed to there is that texts might mean more than their human authors intentionally were aware of at the time the texts were written. And the, the theological supposition is that it is ultimately God uh, who is the authorship of the text uh, and of the events that the text narrates so that the text is full of significations that can be unpacked and understood by later interpreters. I think that's that reflects my own understanding of the census plenier and I think beautifully captures uh, you know the idea that God is in charge of the whole divine economy and orchestrating uh, both event and the the scriptural recording of event in such a way that um, that we can look for these fuller sense uh, things that go beyond what the human author intended now let me take you back then to um, a follow-up question that I had on the encyclopedia of production uh, and uh, the encyclopedia of reception and and it, it's this sometimes whenever people use uh, patristic exegesis, as you as you began to discuss earlier, um, uh, they use it maybe as a way of just thinking about the encyclopedia of reception. But uh, you know, it's something that was the the received tradition later on, and so it kind of fits in the reception history rubric. But do you think that it also um, can help us recover something in the encyclopedia of production? So not just in the encyclopedia of reception, but in the encyclopedia of production. Well, it might. I mean, yes, you sort of have to investigate that on a text-by-text -text basis, I think. I don't think you could make a blanket judgment about it one way or the other. Any sense of how that might work? You mean of how you would test whether... Yeah. Uh, well, it's... Yeah, I mean, here I would go back to the sort of methodological stuff I didn't write, <laughs> but uh, I have... Uh, in my earlier work on Paul, tried to describe some of the tests for discerning echoes. And I think, for example, if you see uh, that an author has referred or alluded to a certain textual tradition in several different places or prominently uh, in another place uh, in the same gospel, say, it enhances the likelihood that the author was consciously aware of that uh, that text when a bit of it gets quoted somewhere else. Um, so that would be one example of, uh, of the kind of test that I would apply. Um, you know, are there other examples that one can find uh, also in the cultural environment of other Jewish interpreters who were citing and discussing the same texts uh, that would enhance the likelihood that uh, and a particular echo uh, might be intentionally uh, in the author's mind. Um, you know, those are the sorts of tests I would apply. Yeah, that's helpful. Uh, one of the things that's been fruitful for me, I think, is, is sort of looking at, you know, Justin Martyr, Irenaeus, and uh, seeing are they picking up um, some of these same Old Testament passages, and if so, what are they doing with it? Are they getting them straight from the Old Testament? Are they getting them through the Gospels, through Paul? Uh, but seeing that as, as maybe an opportunity not just to investigate reception history, uh, but uh, as something that actually might be a historical critical control that we can use to kind of um, to get a better window on um, possible uh, encyclopedia of production for the gospel authors uh, and for Paul, uh, as there's not that much hermeneutical distance between someone like Justin and uh, our gospel authors. 
Yeah, I, I think that's true. Although I, I do think you have to, um, uh, I mean, you know, Justin is an interesting example because um, something like in the dialogue with Trifo, Justin is, is so um, polemical uh, in his insistence that uh, Trifo and, and the Jewish community uh, have got it wrong. Uh, I, the gospel authors, I think, are, are at a slightly different stage of the uh, unfolding interpretation of this tradition, and uh, they're more concerned to demonstrate, for the most part, continuity uh, with Jewish tradition rather than to highlight uh, points of conflict and difference. But um, you know, again, that's a that's a very broad generalization, and, and you you sort of have to unpack it case by case. Uh, R- Richard, one of th- one of the questions that is is now a tradition on OnScript, which, which means we've this will be our second time now, is uh, asking the question: What do you think is a an idea or theory in New Testament studies that you think needs to die? Well, I think I can answer that question pretty easily, and and this reflects uh, something that was a conviction that grew upon me as I worked through the writing of this book. The idea that I would say needs to die is the construct that the earliest Christologies are so-called low Christologies, in which Jesus is simply a prophet or a wise teacher and, and ultimately a martyr, and that ultimately over time, over a long period of time, you get the emergence of so-called high Christologies in which Jesus is identified as a divine figure uh, or the incarnation or embodiment of God. Uh, and I think that that evolutionary model, which suggests that divine identity Christologies come along only late, is simply inaccurate and uh, leads to real distortions uh, in uh, all sorts of attempts to construct the history, the historical trajectory of early Christian theology. Uh, I think that the divine identity of Jesus is embedded at the earliest layers that we can see in, in the gospel tradition, and it's certainly there in the letters of Paul as well. And so I just think that that model is wrong and needs to be thrown out and uh, uh, we need to rethink what we think we know about how the early Christians understanding of Jesus emerged. Yeah. And I, I think that comes out very strongly in, in your book, obviously, because you talk that's a major section of each uh, chapter on the gospels is the way yes. that Jesus uh, is, as, as you put it, mysteriously fused with the identity of God. And, right. and one, of, one of my follow-up questions on that very point is that when you talk about this mysterious fusing, in some ways that could sound like the gospel writers are either not putting this front and center or that they're not very insistent on the point. Uh, that it's just if, if they had been, they would have made it more clear. So I guess that might be a common pushback that if it were the case that Jesus' identity was fused with the identity of God – that this would have been a point of clear emphasis. So I guess my question is, do you think it's an open and shut case in the synoptics? And if so, what accounts for the need to surround this claim with mystery? Well, of course, um, 
I mean, I don't think that the surrounding of the claim in mystery is something that's done artificially. The claim is deeply mysterious uh, in its in its essence uh, to say that somehow the God of the universe who created all that is, uh, is actually somehow embodied and present in a human being who hungers and suffers and dies. Uh, That's a deep paradox, uh, which is uh, mysterious to begin with. And I think particularly in in the earliest uh, evidence we have in the gospel traditions, there's a sense, I, I see this particularly in Mark, that, that that is such an awe-inspiring mystery that it's one that can be approached only with the greatest indirection and deference because on if to to blurt it uh, to blurt it out in some uh, overt way uh, is is almost to betray the the mystery or, or to court blasphemy mm. uh, there's a quotation from uh, Rowan Williams that I uh, have. It's actually on page four of the introduction. Uh, Williams writes, Christian faith has its beginnings in an experience of profound contradictoriness, an experience which so questioned the religious categories of its time that the resulting reorganization of religious language was a centuries-long task. That seems to me to be a, a very insightful comment that the gospel, as we read the gospels, we're reading the early stages of what Williams calls the centuries long reorganization of religious language. Hmm. It's, it's a kind of a conceptual uh, revolution that requires a, a good deal of rethinking. And so the what I'm suggesting is that the the awareness of Jesus' divine identity is hardwired into all four Gospels, including Mark, uh, but that the the conceptual apparatus for talking about that is something that develops across time. And I suppose we might say it doesn't even really fully develop uh, until you get to the Council of Chalcedon in the 5th century. So uh, there's a... um, um, that you know that accounts for some of the mysteriousness. Yeah, that's helpful. And I think I wonder too if I mean you could still read Williams' quote there in a developmentalist sense of yeah of of increasing articulation or better articulation later on. Or you could I mean one of the things that I think with the Gospels you have a different mode of expression, a different way of mm-hmm. saying something. In narrative that you don't have in a in a kind of propositional form, but what we have to attune ourselves to is just a different way of speaking. And um, I think so, that's a yeah, I'm, I'm butting in, but I think that's a really important observation that the gospel writers are not writing theological treatises; they're writing narratives, they're writing stories, and the manner in which they um, express truth is not um it, for the most part anyway is is not uh, discursive and expository and as much as it is narrational yeah and that reminds me of a, a thing that's said commonly about 
Hebrew narration in the Old Testament that writers show they don't tell. And so you right. have you have narrators that that offer very little, for instance, ethical reflection. But mm-hmm. that doesn't mean they don't have a deeply ethical story or worldview that they're wanting to wanting the reader to embrace. And right. so and, and um and another thing you mentioned was that the idea of an intrinsic mystery to what's being expressed here uh, is a helpful way of putting it because I think maybe a parallel is the way Jesus uses the term Messiah uh, when he engages with people. If he were to just blurt out, I'm the Messiah, I'm the Messiah, uh, it, it he, he would be sort of jumping the gun because he had he was busy redefining Messiahship. And right. so that, that had to be kind of kept quiet until that process of redefinition had taken place and so that you've got the gospel writers here speaking indirectly because sometimes indirect speech is the best way to uh, speak about something new uh, rather than an unfortunate inarticulate mode of expression right yeah that's well said and certainly that's true that the the concept of messiah in uh, first century Jewish culture would have inevitably been tied together with expectations that the Messiah was to be a great king and military leader who would conquer Israel's enemies and reestablish the throne of David uh, in uh, you know, terms of military power. And clearly that is not what Jesus was about. So he's, he's the anointed one and the Messiah in, a, in an unexpected way. Now, Richard, I, I know your book is not about the historical Jesus per se, um, but it would seem that your book might have some implications for historical Jesus studies. And I'm especially thinking about this Christology business and um, uh, your adoption of the Christology of Divine Identity category from Richard Bauckham and advocacy for an early high Christology. Um, so one, one of the things that I guess I've been puzzling around myself is uh, the the degree to which this goes back to Jesus himself. Now, uh, you, I might force you to be a little bit incautious here because uh, your study didn't pertain <laughs> to historical Jesus studies. Right. But, um, is there a trajectory f- uh, that if you were to do a historical Jesus study, let's say, uh, on the basis of this book and to move in that, di- uh, that direction, um, what do you think you would find for early high Christology in terms of maybe Jesus' own historical awareness? Right. Well, of course, anytime we talk about that, we're talking about something for which we have only indirect evidence. You know, we have only secondary testimony. Uh, Jesus, as far as we know, didn't write anything. Uh, so we don't have, you know, we have only um, accounts of, of what he said that are produced considerably later by other people. And so I've, I've, you're right to say I've always been cautious about making these assertions. I mean, it's, it's one of the areas where I've had uh, some friendly disagreement with friends and colleagues like Tom Wright and Ben Witherington, who are more um, willing to make uh, robust assertions about what Jesus intended. Um, but... With with all due caution expressed there, I think you're right that the uh, the fact that these claims 
for Jesus' divine identity, whether made directly or indirectly, um, are so persistent in the gospel tradition. The fact that those claims are so persistent might surely suggest that this was, in fact, something that can be traced back to Jesus himself. You know, an example would be the, the example I gave earlier about uh, Jesus saying, Jerusalem, how often I've desired to gather you under my wings. Uh, if that is an authentic saying of the historical Jesus, um, what are we to make of that? Uh, surely it suggests something about who he thought he was. Um, so I, I do think there are, it, it opens up. Again, I, I think the the typical trajectory of historical Jesus research has been governed by that evolutionary hypothesis I mentioned before uh, of starting with a, a low non-divine Christology and only later superimposing uh, an incarnational Christology on that. And I, I think this uh, this kind of investigation very much reopens that question. Uh, I also think it makes us pause and ponder whether the Christology of John is really very all, as different from the synoptics as it's often thought to be. Uh, and if so, what that might mean about the historical value of some of the um, uh, sayings attributed to Jesus in John's gospel. So I, I think you're right to point to it as an area that is worth a lot of rethinking. Richard, I, I want to be sensitive to your time, but um, one of the areas that we wanted uh, to hear you reflect on was was some of the the sense in which the the reader's imagination is converted, uh, or someone undergoes a conversion of the imagination uh, as they read uh, the New Testament, the Gospels. So you state at the end of your book that, quote, if we could acquire a single discipline of listening attentively for echoes of scripture in the gospel narratives, it would have an enormous impact on our pastoral imagination in our preaching. So what are some of those implications uh, that you think that converted imagination would have for the church or do have that? What have you seen in action, maybe? Well, yes, I, I do think uh, that the implications of this are considerable. I mean, one is simply that we would be encouraged uh, to think and preach more poetically. Um, the The gospel writers are very much attuned to what we might call the poetry of the Old Testament and, and the way in, in which it uh, is re-engaged and reactivated in the story of Jesus. And I think that our, our preaching would do well to reflect some of that same kind of imaginative richness um, and that that would make us more interesting in our own speech and, and our own willingness to uh, create imaginative links between the experience of the church in the year 2016 and what we see going on in the text. Um, I think a lot of preaching uh, has by students who've come through 
seminaries where they've been trained in in uh, modernist historical critical methods uh, tends to be uh, either prosy uh, and and kind of literalistic or uh, on the other hand where it isn't the preacher sort of leaves the text behind and tries to think of some interesting or funny stories uh, that are sort of disconnected from the biblical narrative and the kind of analogical imagination that we see in the Gospels of again and again discovering the, these uh, metaphorical correspondences between Israel's story and the story of Jesus might suggest that we ought to go on discovering those kinds of analogical correspondences. So that's that's one thing. I would also say simply, and this is perhaps very obvious, that a lot of the, the church's teaching and preaching across time has been kind of unreflectively Marcionite in character. What I mean by that is that it effectively disowns the Old Testament as a Christian, uh, as Christian scripture uh, and produces a caricature of the God of the Old Testament uh, as an angry uh, and violent God. And thank goodness Jesus came to save us from that God. Uh, and, and, you know, that's just, it couldn't be more wrong, it seems to me. Uh, the One effect of my own study of this material has been to make me deeply aware of what a Jewish text the New Testament is and uh, and how organically rooted it is at every point in Israel's scripture. And we need to recover that in our preaching. Obviously, there are some Christian traditions that have maintained a more lively awareness of that than others, but certainly the, the sort of liberal Methodist tradition that I grew up in uh, was really in danger of jettisoning the Old Testament altogether as scripture. Um, and uh, I just think that's a, a deep theological mistake. So we need to we need to reclaim that. Um, and then I guess the, the last thing I would say about that is is that th- this recovery of an imaginative linkage um, with the story of the New Testament and the Old Testament has the effect of embedding us as readers in the story in such a way that we are addressed by it and called to account by it and um, called to participate. We're commissioned to participate in the ongoing unfolding and living out of, of that story. And again, I just think we need to have a, a much livelier sense of that. It's not a matter of trying to show how, let's see if we can figure out some way of making the Bible relevant to our day, which is often the model that gets employed. I just think that's a, a deep mistake. The, the way we need to think about it is to ask, how are we already participating in the story that the Bible tells, living our lives within that narrative world? Well, Richard, I think that's a wonderful uh, place uh, to to wrap up the interview. I hope that in addition to going to onscript.study and, and buying your book, our leader, our listeners begin what for Matt and I has been, a, and many others, has been a really transformative way of hearing the New Testament that you've uh, opened up 
for for many people as we listen for echoes of scripture in the gospels and other new testament books so thank you so much for joining on script today well it's been a pleasure to talk with you guys these are very helpful and and probing questions and uh, i hope it will stimulate folks to continue to participate in the investigation and the conversation thank you been listening to On Script, conversations on current biblical scholarship. Until next time, visit us at our site, onscript.study. Mm-hmm.